for our live stream. Just want to welcome everybody joining us for our live stream. It's only one part of our service here at Chelsea with City Temple. You can be part of the whole thing by dropping us an email or by coming down and seeing us in person at 11 a.m. on a Sunday. Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Before I read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true, and thank you that it gives us an accurate revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak into our hearts and our minds today the reality of Jesus, and let your Holy Spirit rest on me that I can bring your word to your people boldly and faithfully through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your seat, for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, I made a mistake years and years ago, uh, probably about 30 plus years ago, that I won't make again if I'm ever in the same situation. We had a puppy. His name was Chopin. Cute little puppy, kind of a mutt, you know, no, not pure breed. And, uh, and at night, he would sit on the floor and go, me, 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 me. So I invited him to come up on the bed. And Karen said, don't do that. that you don't want to do that, Rod. Oh, he sits so small, he's just a puppy. Well, puppies get big. And... There were things that used to come between Karen and me. Actually, one thing, that was a dog. Uh, as he would crawl up on the bed in the middle of the night 
and weasel his way down between the two of us. So I learned that, you know, you should never do that. And actually, there's another reason why you probably shouldn't do that. Uh, not only your dog, but also a cat, is because dogs and cats used to eat people. You know, tigers, they, they still eat people. Lions, they'll eat people. You know, there are some vicious cats out there. They're dogs, you know, they pack together and they like to kill and eat people. We see that. I mean, it's, it's a dangerous thing, right? Except, okay, uh, we're not too worried about that, right? Because we've domesticated our dogs and our cats. Now, so domesticated means that you, you take something and you bring it into your home and you make it safe and you, you can make it almost like it's part of your family. So we domesticate it. And, uh, and because of that, we kind of trust our dogs, we trust our cats not to claw out our faces in the middle of the night and eat us if we have them as pets in our homes, right? Uh, but you know, people can take that kind of approach toward Jesus. People try to domesticate Jesus. They've tried to domesticate Jesus for 2,000 years. And you think about it, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, humanism, the Baha'is today, you know, all of these people want to domesticate Jesus. They try to domesticate him by saying, well, he was a good teacher. Maybe he was a prophet. Maybe he had special insights into God and that kind of thing. But certainly, he wasn't really God. He couldn't have been God's son. He couldn't have been fully divine. And so what they want to do, they try to domesticate Jesus. But many people do that. Many people in the West, many people in Christian nations. I, I've often wondered why I've never heard on a work site, on a construction site, a group of men getting together and say, oh, Buddha, 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 Buddha Christ. You don't hear that, do you? You know, you hear the use of Jesus. And by making Jesus into a bit of a profanity, a swear word, we're domesticating Jesus. And it's interesting how Jesus is the only name that people tend to use as a swear word of all the possible words. You know, they certainly don't use my name. I haven't heard any of your names used. I, the closest I got to any alternative as a child, we used to say a lot, holy cow which is kind of like a Hindu thing, right? But I don't think Hindus are offended by that. I, I don't know, in the same, certainly not in the same way Christians are. But you know, people in the church try to domesticate Jesus too. I've seen this a lot and I feel like it happens a lot uh, even in, in Western Christianity. I mean, how many times have we heard people talk about Jesus is my personal savior? Now, there was a time when people said that, when they met, meant, I've made a commitment in my life to follow Jesus. But many times, I feel like people today are using that idea of personal Savior. Well, he, you know, he's my Savior, but he's not necessarily your Savior. He's not necessarily the Savior of the world, you know. He's just our personal Savior. And you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm not against having a personal relationship with Jesus, mind you. But the problem is when we make that personal relationship so much that we bring Jesus down and try to put Jesus on our level. You know, it's kind of like Jesus is my personal trainer. You know, he's helping me. Or Jesus, you know, he's my, he's my personal confidant. I don't have to pay a psychologist because I can talk to Jesus, you know, and, and he gives me psychological counseling. Or Jesus is my accountant. Uh, or one of my favorites, Jesus is my co-pilot. You know, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you're going down. I want Jesus to be my pilot. You see the difference? Because if he's just your co-pilot, you're still in charge, right? You're still in charge. Or people say, put Jesus on the throne of your heart. Well, that sounds good, right? But you're still in charge of who's in the tr on the throne of your heart. Either Jesus is king or he's not. And either Jesus is your king or he's not. We can't domesticate Jesus. And there's a real tendency today amongst Christians to try to remake Jesus according to our own wants, our own desires, our own expectations, our own cultural uh, background, our own cultural desires. I mean, we don't like the idea that something might be called sin. And so we make Jesus, oh, he's just filled with grace and love. And we don't talk about sin. Or we minimize it. Or we try to make it not important. And all of that is a way to try to domesticate Jesus Christ. Because we want to make ourselves comfortable with Jesus. But frankly, if you really know Jesus, you should be very uncomfortable with him. I trust Jesus, right? I hope you do too. I trust Jesus, but in my trust of Jesus, I know that Jesus has taken me through some very difficult times. I also know that Jesus has disciplined me on occasions. And none of those things are comfortable. None of those things are easy. And if you are really following Jesus, many times he will call you to do things that are profoundly uncomfortable, such as take up your cross every day and follow him. And I don't know about you, but having a nail in your hand is a profoundly uncomfortable experience. Uh, I, I haven't experienced that, but uh, trying to help with this electric situation, you see the, the, the plaster on my finger, I did cut a big gouge in my finger with a screwdriver, and it hurt. And it made me think, you know, I'd rather not have a nail in my hand because it's a little uncomfortable. Yet Jesus says, take up your cross every single day and follow me, even if it's uncomfortable. And it's so important that we resist this domestication of Jesus Christ today because people who try to domesticate Jesus, and you never do, by the way, he's called the Lion of Judah, and we don't domesticate lions it's always a danger. You know those guys that used to put their heads in lions' mouths? You heard about those? Uh, that kind of stopped when a few of them got their heads bit off. You can't domesticate a lion. 
in that way. And if you try to domesticate Jesus, you always fall into error or you will fall away completely because you can't do it. And our lives today, in this world that we're living in, a very dangerous world right now, a very uncertain world right now, in this world right now, our lives today depend on us knowing who Jesus really is and living accordingly. But we have to begin by knowing who he is. And that's where we turn again to this, this great passage from the book of Hebrews. We don't exactly know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, the leading theory right now is a guy named Apollos, that's mentioned in the book of Acts, was probably the writer of Hebrews because of the style of writing. It most certainly wasn't the Apostle Paul uh, that wrote this, uh, but it's not attributed to anyone, but also because of the extensive quotes from the Old Testament, they think that maybe it was this guy named Apollos, but it doesn't really matter. It's in the Bible, and the Church of Jesus Christ has understood that this is the inspired Word of God. And the writer to the Hebrews, he sets out to remind the people about who Jesus really is. And he does that in this opening chapter in a very powerful way. First of all, he says that Jesus is the word God has spoken. Jesus is the word. The word's not Muhammad. The word's not the Quran. The word's not Buddha. The word's not Hinduism. The word's not any of the idols of Hinduism. The word that God, the one true living God, has spoken is Jesus. And God has spoken through the prophets. And he goes on to show us how often that God, speaking through the prophets over several hundreds of years, pointed to the coming of Jesus so that everybody could acknowledge that Jesus really is who he said he was. God spoke to the prophets at many times and in various ways. And God spoke to the prophets using a lot of different names for Jesus, like Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Before the name Jesus was revealed, there were all these other names for Jesus that God spoke, but all of the prophets point to Jesus. That's his point. For hundreds of years, all of these people spoke and they pointed to Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the reality of Jesus. And the writer says that God's also spoken through the glories of the creation. That God created the universe, everything there is, the ages, all the things around us, all of history. God created all of that through Jesus in such a way that it would reveal God's glory. As Paul says in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God has revealed himself in the vastness of the universe. 
He's revealed himself in so many ways, and he's pointed to Jesus in the vastness of the universe. You might say, how? Think about the sun. We all live by the sun, right? We need the light of the sun. But how does the sun exist? The sun exists by dying. We have life through death because one day the sun will burn out. The sun will use it. But we get life through the burning of the sun, which comes through the dying of the sun. It points to the cross of Christ. We can see it in creation. Some people think, well, the creation is is far too big. God was wasting his time and his energy to create such a vast universe. We know the universe is bounded. It's got limits. But they say God wasted by creating such a large universe. And we say, no, it demonstrates the greatness of God's love. Because when you value someone, you will spend on them extravagantly. One of my best friends in the States named Jeff, when he proposed uh, to his wife, and they've been married now for a number of years, uh, not as long as Karen and me, but close. Uh, And uh, uh, anyway, when he proposed to her, he didn't have a ring. And so she said no. And so he went out and he was a collector of baseball cards, which are quite valuable in the States. I know most people here say that's kind of stupid, but you know, beauty's in the eye of the the older, right? Well, what did he do? He went out and sold some of his precious baseball cards to buy a ring. And she said yes. Not because the ring was so great, but because of the extravagance, the cost in buying the ring. So even in the universe, it demonstrates how extravagantly God loves us. And so it's no wonder that he shows us that extravagance in the death of Jesus Christ. Because God created the whole universe for Jesus. The whole universe was created so that Jesus could be revealed to us in this time. It's extraordinary. And of course, the writer says here that God has spoken through and by his eternal son. And that eternal son is revealed in Jesus. He says, God has spoken in these last days. And what he's saying by that phrase is that Jesus is God's final revelation of himself to people. There's no other revelation. The Baha'is believe that there was another prophet that came after Jesus and that Jesus was pointing to them. They're wrong. There's no other revelation of God than Jesus. In the last days, God finally spoke the name of Jesus. It's his final revelation of himself to people. And God has spoken through the one whom God appointed to the, as the heir of all things. This means that not only does Jesus deserve all the worship and all the honor, but this means that all of history is for Jesus. Everything from Adam and Eve on down to the culmination of history 
It's all for Jesus. It's all to reveal Jesus. All history leads to Jesus. And all history will be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the word that God has spoken in these last days. The writer tells us. But then he goes on and he says a second thing about Jesus. He says, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Full God, full stop. Jesus is God. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That in Jesus, all of God's glory radiates out through all of creation and all of time, all of history, all of existence. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint or the exact representation, the exact picture of God's being, of God's nature, of who God really is. So when you see Jesus, you see God. When you see Jesus, you are looking at God. When you see the character of Jesus, you're seeing the character of God. When you're hearing the words of Jesus, you're hearing the words of God. When you are following Jesus, you are following God because Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, of God's character. And Jesus, as God, upholds, he sustains all things simply by the word of his power. Just like God said, let there be light, and it was so, Jesus upholds, sustains the universe simply by the word of his power. And this Jesus, after he came, after he died on the cross, paying the price for our sins, as he provided for our purification, as he made a way so that we could be cleansed from sin, as he accomplished all that God called him to do on this planet, as the full incarnate God, fully God, fully human, after he did that, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, he's seated with God because he is God in the most majestic place. And this Jesus is not created. He's not an angel. He's not like any other being because he's fully God. And Jesus is superior to all other beings. That's why the name Jesus is a more excellent name. The name Jesus is the most excellent name because the name Jesus is one of the names of God because he is God. And it's the God that we can relate to, the God that we can interact with, the God who became one of us, yet without sin. Jesus is God. Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God himself. And Jesus, the third thing the writer says here, Jesus is supreme over all. 
Jesus is superior to everything and everyone. There is no one who even comes close to Jesus. There is no other name by which we are to be saved. There is no other name under heaven. There is no other prophet. There is no other priest. There is no other king that by whom we can be saved. There is no other word that we can follow other than the word of God because Jesus is superior over all of those. He's not a created being. He's not an angel, but he is above all angels and all created beings. Jesus is God's son, but that doesn't mean that somehow God got Mary pregnant and gave birth to Jesus. It didn't happen that way because Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father. In other words, Jesus, the Son, was the eternal Word of God in existence uh, alongside God because He is God. So Jesus deserves all worship. From the time of His birth, from the time that we had a name, Jesus deserved all the worship, all the worship of the angels which God appointed even from that point of his incarnation. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is the sovereign Lord over everything. Jesus is the sovereign ruler of all. And we can have confidence in that because Jesus rules with uprightness and justice. Only Jesus knows how to make the wrong things right in this world. Human beings will never solve the issue of Gaza and Israel. Human beings alone can never solve the issue of Ukraine and Russia. Human beings alone can't solve the issue of climate change. We can try, we can do our best, but only Jesus Christ knows how to rule the world in justice, making the wrong things right. And only Jesus rules the world with uprightness, Every decision he makes is the right one. He never makes his decision out of self-interest. He never makes a decision out of selfishness. He never makes a decision out of a wrong perspective. He never makes a decision out of an incorrect assumption. Every decision he makes, every, every choice that he makes is upright and just. And it's upright and just in part because he loves righteousness. He loves it when people are in right relationship with one another, doing the right things by each other. Wherever that is, Jesus loves righteousness, but he hates wickedness. And you know what that word hate means in the Greek? Hate. It's a passionate despising of wickedness. That's Jesus. He passionately despises wickedness. He despises wickedness in Ukraine and wickedness in Russia. He despises wickedness in Gaza and wickedness in Israel. Jesus despises wickedness, but loves righteousness. And despising wickedness and loving righteousness both together 
brings joy and gladness to Jesus. Now that's extraordinary. Jesus' hatred of wickedness brings him gladness. That's what the writer here is saying. Just as his love of righteousness brings him gladness. He loves it. He, he is, rejoices when we hate wickedness as well. Beginning first and foremost with the wickedness in our own lives. You see, we as people, we tend to hate wickedness in others, but love our own little wickedness that we say. But that's an extraordinary thing to say. That Jesus' hatred of wickedness, as well as his love of righteousness, brings him supreme satisfaction and joy. And you know why? Because only Jesus can do that perfectly. We cannot, but he can. That's why we've got to follow him. That's why we have to follow him. And this Jesus remains eternal. He had no beginning. He'll have no end. He was the word of God prior to the incarnation. And now he'll continue as the incarnate Jesus Christ for all eternity, for our sake. The writer says here that the heavens and the earth, they're temporary. They're temporary. I remember a time, this is a few decades ago, when most scientists thought that the universe was eternal. They thought the universe had always been here. They thought the universe was infinitely large, that if you went as far as you could that way, that way, that way or that way, you'd never get to the end of the universe. And boy, were they surprised when they discovered the Big Bang and that the universe had a beginning, just like the Bible said. And boy, were they surprised when they discovered that not only does the universe have a beginning, it will also have an ending, just like the Bible says. It's amazing that the Bible got there a couple thousand years before the scientists did. But that was always going to be the case because God did not design this universe to last forever. God designed this universe to last only so long as was necessary to reveal the glory of Christ to the creation. Jesus is eternal but the universe will wear out and God will change them and God will make a new heavens and a new earth that seems to be eternal along with Jesus. Jesus remains the same. He does not change and his years will never end. And Jesus will reign until God makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus is going to reign and every single enemy that we see right now, whether it's climate change or pornography or war in the Middle East or war in Ukraine, selfishness, greed, every enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the power of Satan, every enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ will be put under his feet and all creation will declare the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose of all of this. So we all see the supremacy of Jesus. 
Yes, God uses the angels in this process, but the angels are not greater than Jesus. In fact, the angels are just here to help serve us who have been saved by grace through faith. This is Jesus as he really is. This is Jesus that cannot be domesticated. This Jesus is not subject to our ideas about Jesus. He's not subject to our preferences about Jesus. He's not subject to our whims. He's not subject to the things that we think we like or the things that we don't like. Because this Jesus is fully God. He's God's final word. He's fully God. He reigns supreme over all. But here's the key thing. With Jesus, there is no middle ground. You can't just take or leave Jesus. Ultimately, you cannot be passive about Jesus. You either accept him and accept Jesus as he is, not as you want him to be, but as he is, or you have rejected Jesus. That's the choice. You can't say that Jesus is just a good teacher because if you say that, you've rejected Jesus. You can't say that Jesus was a prophet and just a prophet because if you say that, you've rejected Jesus. You can't say, well, Jesus was a great human being but certainly wasn't God and certainly couldn't have been God's son because if you say that, you've rejected Jesus. And we need to be clear because Jesus was clear. Jesus was clear. There's no middle ground. You take him as he comes or you don't take him at all and bear the consequences of your choice. So what do we do? How do we respond to this reality of who Jesus really, really is? First of all, we have to receive Jesus as he is, as the way that Jesus has been revealed. And we can trust this book. We can trust the Bible and the Bible's revelation of Jesus. That's why there's four witnesses to Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in this book. That's why you have all the letters about Jesus in this book, which are witnesses to what Jesus Christ has done and who Jesus Christ is. That's why you have things like the book of Revelation that looks to the future and the future revelation of Jesus. So we can trust the book and we have to receive Jesus as he has been revealed. And we need to seek to know Jesus as he has been revealed. And then we need to believe Jesus. We need to receive Jesus, but we also need to believe Jesus. We need to believe what Jesus has said. We need to believe what God has said in speaking the word, Jesus. And we need to believe what Jesus has done for us. Dying on the cross, rising bodily from the dead, that by God's grace through faith in Jesus, we might have eternal life, beginning with the forgiveness of our sins. And then we need to submit ourselves to his absolute leadership in our lives. No Lord 
is an oxymoron. If somebody's really your Lord, you can't say no. If somebody's truly your leader, especially someone like Jesus, you need to say yes. We must submit ourselves to Jesus' absolute rulership in our lives. Sometimes that'll take us places we don't want to go and will cause us to do things we don't want to do. Sometimes that will take us places of incredible joy and celebration. You know, too often, I think, as Christians, we make it sound terrible to submit to Jesus' absolute lordship. But Jesus wants your absolute obedience because he wants you to experience his absolute joy. There's nobody who enjoyed life like Jesus did. There's nobody who experienced pleasure as deeply as Jesus did because he enjoyed life without the contamination of sin. That's why we can submit ourselves to his absolute leadership in our lives. Because if you go through a hard time, there's something good that Jesus is going to do. I don't know what it is, but I've walked with him long enough now and walked through enough hard times and seen enough good on the other side of it to know I can trust him no matter what he says and no matter where he calls me to go. We receive Jesus, we believe Jesus, we submit ourselves to his absolute lordship and we commit ourselves to obeying and following him without trying to domesticate him. Yes, Jesus can be your friend, but never forget he's your God. Yes, Jesus can be your confidant, but never forget that he paid the price for the sins you're sharing and the pain you're sharing when he died on the cross. Yes, he can be your accountant, but he expects you to use your money like he wants you to use it. Not exactly like you want to use it. Yes, he can be in your car or in your plane or on your boat, but he needs to be the pilot. But you know what? As a great pilot, from time to time, he'll let you be the co-pilot as well and enjoy the process of flying. We need to commit ourselves to obeying and following Jesus as he is. It's only doing that that we'll know Jesus. It's only doing that that we'll live in the way that Jesus wants us to live. And it's only doing that that we'll make it through the times that we're living in right now. Because it's all about Jesus, the most excellent name of all. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We worship you. We glorify you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for revealing yourself to us that we can see you and know you as you really are. Jesus, we don't want to domesticate you, but we want to believe you. We want to receive you just as you are. We want to submit to you and we want to commit ourselves to you fully. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to do that now. By your Holy Spirit, give us a deeper, 
fuller revelation of who you are than we've ever had before. Show us who you are in all your glory and all your majesty. Show us who you are as the eternal Son of God for whom all things have been created and by whom all things hold together. Show us who you are as the beginning of history, as the fulfillment of the promise in history, and as the culmination of all history. Reveal yourself to us, Jesus, so that we might live for you as you are for your glory. We pray all this through your holy name. Amen. Amen.